Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? and looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was, that is a fanzine, right? When the mod scene was at its peak, this form of media, the homemade media, was um, at its peak. I mean, it was justifiably enormous. It gave people the chance to stand on their own two feet and i think there were at least 1500 fanzines uh around at the time that was the voice of ed pillar this is the voice of tony fletcher and what you are going to hear over the next hour is a conversation between the two of us this is episode 18 of the fanzine podcast and ed pillar if you don't know him is not only uh the person who wrote the biggest mod fanzine or i should say edited and published the biggest mod fanzine of them all extraordinary sensations which got up to a truly extraordinary and sensational fifteen thousand copies per issue at its uh, mid late 80s peak but he's also the author of two books on fanzines one is called mod zines and uh, the other is called punk zines both of those are published by omnibus press and he is also the author of a brand new memoir about his teenage and very early 20s life called clean living under difficult circumstances a mod memoir And you will hear us talking about all three of those books and, of course, about Extraordinary Sensations. If you do know Ed, you will know he is a truly entrepreneurial character. And you'll find that out over the course of this this episode, although you'll also find it out from his book. If you don't know Ed, um, CF what I just said before. But let me tell you that as well as writing these two books, these three books, two books on fanzines, one on his uh, mod life, in recent years, and as well as uh, doing the fanzine back in the day, Ed uh, Pillar really is the uh, figurehead of the British mod revival. He uh, was very much on the scene back in the day when the scene, uh, the mod revival started out in 79. He is still on it, and he is known for many, many things beyond his writing and his fanzines. He is a top-notch, indeed, international mod DJ. He has started uh, the radio station, Totally Wired Radio, which you can find right now with an incredible array of DJs. That's in more recent years. He's had a couple of record labels over the years. The one you will know him for, if you know him at all, will be for Acid Jazz Records. And even if you don't know Ed's mod background, you should know Acid Jazz Records. And I'm probably leaving loads of things out there. The modcast, all kinds of things. Mod all day is that he's promoted. He was a promoter a lot 
in his younger years. They still do that with the modcast. And I made it clear early on in a part that I just sort of edited out at the beginning. I've got a lot of admiration for Ed. Um, I am mentioned in all three of the books that he's written. And I mentioned quite glowingly. <laughs> and I'm actually, you know, genuinely uh, chuffed and flattered by that and by the impact that Jamming had um, on other fanzines and maybe on people like Ed over the years. But beyond that, you know, we got a little bit of uh, housekeeping chat out of the way between the two of us. I'm going to jump in by uh, bringing us right up to speed. Uh, it's probably going to run just over an hour and it's a good one. And if you want to actually hear the unedited parts, because there are a couple of parts that uh, I just took out just to keep the thing flowing, head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com on midweek uh, update. Gosh, it's going to be number nine or ten. I'm going to be posting the, the full interview just for those people who are that, uh, you know, that dedicated and want it. I know a lot of people have a lot of respect for Ed. Normally, I have two uh, guests uh, at a time on this show because I like to chat back and forth. We tried to line that up, and I have to be honest and say that uh, we couldn't really find anybody uh, who agreed that they were his uh, his peer <laughs> to come on the show. And so uh, we just decided to talk to Ed on his own. So that's what you got. It's a great conversation. It's the Fanzine Podcast, and here we go. Myself, Tony Fletcher, Ed Hiller, in conversation. Enjoy it. The book is Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, A Life in Mod, From the Revival to Acid Jazz. Uh, it's got a fantastic picture of you on a scooter back in the day uh, on the front cover. Uh, it's published by a great publisher as well, Monoray, and I think we've got a mutual friend in Jake Lingwood. Um, yeah. And, you know, you've got the full proper – are they Hachette Publishing? Is that who they're backed by? I yes, think? they are, yeah. yeah. yeah J.K. So you... Rowling's publisher, no less. There you go. So, uh, you know, they've got to spend the money somewhere, right? And it trickles down to you and me occasionally. Yes. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Jake's a great guy. Jake's uh, a, a bit of a, uh, well, he's a mod, isn't he? He's a soul DJ as well on the side. Yeah. 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 And you got that, but you also wrote these other two books, which I've, I've got all of them here, Eddie. Ed. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's on the front of these books as well. So what am I going to do? But um, you, you wrote two books for Omnibus Press with who I've done a lot of my books, including the Keith Moon book. Um, one is Modzines, which is the main one I'm going to focus on. Fanzine Culture from the Mod Revival, which you wrote with Steve Rowland. And also with Steve Rowland, there was a follow on Punk Zines. Uh, British fanzine culture from the punk scene, 76 to 83. But I really wanted to talk to you today about your involvement in the mod scene and mod zines and specifically about extraordinary sensations your own your own zine um so uh, the, the mod zines book is is great um and i i i kind of want to um i kind of want to open by just actually pulling this quote that's right at the beginning of the book because it really like put your what do you do set out your stall um and you say right at the beginning because I think this will catch a lot of listeners by surprise and they'll, they'll ask you to back it up. And I think you can. No other youth culture or subculture centered on fashion or music or both has it ever had as many fanzines dedicated to it as the mod revival. That's quite a yeah. claim, but then you go on to back it up. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, you know, there. I mean, it's impossible to know how many because I didn't have them all. But um, when... The mod scene was at its peak. This form of media, um, the homemade media, was um, at its 
peak. I mean, it was justifiably enormous. With punk, you know, we were, they were just working out how to do it. You know, um, there were only maybe 50 punk scenes in, in, in the UK. But, it, for example, you know, there's a, a, a random town, Chesterfield, in Derbyshire. It's a small town, mining town, it was. And it had four or five fanzines running at the same time. Now, there must have been all of 80 kids that were mods in, the, in that town. But they just, you know, you just didn't. It, it gave people the chance to stand on their own two feet. And I think there were at least 1,500 fanzines uh, around at the time. And I, I you know, you, you couldn't get more fanzines from, from anyone else because... The time's not right. Uh, any, there are youth culture died in 1988. So Maud was the whole 10 years before that. The whole 10 years it was going before that. And it just peaked at a level which hasn't been seen before. Yeah, it is, it is remarkable. Now, you and I have a certain amount uh, in common. For one thing, I found out reading Clean Living that we're the same school year. So you're just a few months older than me, but that that kind of followed very very nicely uh, to read your adventures being basically in the same sort of form, you know, the same year as me. Yeah. Uh, you've got an East End upbringing. Um, I was uh, South London, and as I suspected, I mean, I always kind of knew you write a lot about your family and your dad, is, especially, and you've got well, your mum is as, as well. It was in the around the Small Faces uh, fan club, but you've got that uh, kind of classic, uh, if you don't mind me saying, classic uh, East End upbringing. And we were both, you know, we were both obviously drawn to the punk scene and then drawn to uh, the mod scene when it followed. And I wanted to. Uh, I want to ask you now, like, what was your what was your first exposure to a fanzine? Um, well, the first time, I mean, I looked at fanzines, maximum speed, I suppose. But the first time I, I really read a fanzine was uh, a fanzine run by um, Vaughan Toulouse and Tony Lord from the band called Guns for Hire. And they did um, Get Up and Go. Now, they only did two two versions of this, but I bought them both, and I, I found Vaughan Toulouse a very great... Now, for those of you who don't know Vaughan Toulouse, he was the lead singer of Department S, and he died very early on. He died in 1984. So he died, you know, four years, five years after helping me. But he helped me with my fancy, and he, he was very encouraging. And... Um, uh, you know what it is? They made me feel part of something. Right. And and you want to write about it because you're part of it. You might only be writing for 10 people, 20 people. But, yeah. I think that, I think that explains a lot. That, uh, But what's interesting is you had been going to punk shows. I mean, you... you uh, this is in your book, in your in Clean Living. It's it's on the couple of other po uh, podcasts I heard you on. Yeah, you, know, you got out, and like me, you found out that uh, 
you know, you could obviously you could get into the Hammersmith Odeons of this world, but on a much cheaper basis, you could get into the marquee and they let they let yeah. us in. I've still never figured that one out either, Eddie. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they 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 let us in the marquee. They must have had some licensing that was like you can have under 18s if they don't drink, which didn't go work very well anyway. Um, <laughs> so you went to the gigs, but you you jumped straight to the fact that the first fanzine you really noticed was maximum speed which by its very name is a mod zine so had you not seen any of the punk scenes beforehand i'd seen them and i picked them up and i put them down again uh, you know i read them occasionally uh, but none stuck in my mind the thing about maximum speed it was it was it was a small club um you know uh, i felt they were writing to me for me the, the letters they made up and you know <laughs> it was just very funny and um that op- they opened my eyes to the fanzine, and I, I from then um, I became a, a a very prolific fanzine buyer and collector. Now, I mean, I had several copies of jamming, early jammings as well, um, but I collected them because fanzines. Are, I have a real problem right, with extraordinary sensations volume one. I can't find it. And I've been approached on four or five occasions to publish all 17 or 18 episodes in one book. It would be a big, thick book. But I can't find volume one because I only made 20 and I sold them all at a back-to-zero gig. And then, you know, fanzines were due. They were bought, they were 20p, they were read and they were thrown away. They were and, meant to be ephemeral, weren't they, really? Yeah. And that's what I liked about them. Um, so if anyone's listening to this and has a copy of I came very close to getting it. Do you remember Dominic from Shake? Oh, absolutely. I've got a note to talk about. Let's talk about him now. What a character. Well, he he sold his fanzine collection to a mate of mine. Yeah. And I was telling my friend that I'd, you know, I'm, I'm really short on this fanzine. I need volume one. It, it'll make all the difference. And he said, yeah, I had it. And I said, what do you mean you had it? And he said, I bought it off Dominic. And sold it again. So, you know, there was only, so that's 19 copies left untraced. He can't get, you know, he doesn't know who he sold it to. It's gone. Yeah, so, I only did 50 of the first issue of Jamming, and I buried the, the, the two copies I had. Uh, no, the one copy I had. Sorry, I've only got the one for the longest time. And when I did the best of jamming book, I finally felt, well, look, if you're going to put them all together, because it was awful. It was terrible. I was 13. Yeah. And, you know, it, I, it, it, it's really, really bad. Though there is a glimmer of a writer in, in a couple of parts there. It's all the six pages. But when we did the book, I was like, well, given the progression that the fanzine took, I don't mind printing a, a page or two here. It's like, it's okay, because then you're going to turn the page of this book and see the progression. But I actually kind of like hid my copies. That was 50. I mean, if you did 20, it's possible I had a copy. Um, but if I did, my fanzine collection didn't survive. It, it got donated, and then something happened to it. And these days, there are museums looking to buy fanzines. There are archives. I know. Looking to buy fanzines. This is this is so bizarre. I sold my entire fanzine collection, all of it, um, quite a while ago, about 10, 12, 15 years ago, when I was looking to raise some money. And um, now, the, this, the, the, a museum in Australia has contacted me, a museum in, in America. Um, and it's just it's mental that these things that were designed to be thrown away 
could be so collectible now. We thought of them got, like newspapers, didn't we, really? It's like, yeah. you know, who, uh, I mean, to some extent, who keeps a newspaper? Although, you know, smart people have kept old music papers as well, because you, yeah. you'd, you'd sort of have your favorite group on the cover or a particularly famous interview, and uh, nobody had thought, you know, nobody could yet dream up the concept of the internet and this stuff being stored. So you're like, oh, that interview with Paul Weller, that's great. Or that interview later with Morrissey, you know, that's a classic. I'm going to keep that. Or, you know, ones that I particularly remember, um, uh, Lester Bangs writing about the clash, you know, that was that was magnificent writing. I'm like, I need to keep that. Um, you're talking uh, about how fanzines spoke to you. And that's a, such a central point about fanzines. Were you, were you buying the music press? And did you have yes. any distaste for the music press? I mean, or, or did you just find, well, the music papers are telling me what's going on, but the fanzines uh -oh. are telling me something more? I bought Sounds, because in England there are three. Sounds, the enemy, well, they, they are they were. three. They, they were three. <laughs> yeah. Sounds, the enemy, and the uh, uh, music. Uh, Melody Maker, yeah. Melody Maker. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I bought Sounds because I liked uh, Eric Fuller, I liked and Gary, Gary um, Bushell as well uh, in the early days, who was very uh, supportive of the mod scene. Um, and I found that you could find a bit, in 79 anyway, 78, 79, you could find quite a lot of stuff on mod bands and punk bands, but along with your British heavy, new wave of British heavy metal bands, or, you know, they, they were kind of less pretentious than the other two, I think. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so I used to, <coughs> excuse me. So I used to <coughs> buy them and cut them out and cut and stick it on the wall of my house. So I'm, I'm, there's a picture in the book of my bedroom halfway through this this period of 79 when I just, just there wasn't a spare inch anywhere of, um, of, of wall that you could um, stick another picture of Paul Weller on, another news cutting <laughs> of the jam or, or, you know, or any of these bands, some of the smaller bands as well. Um, and I just... I embraced it and, and kept it. And I didn't, um, I think on reflection, I didn't like the music press. And I think I've stated that in my book, I think. But but at the time, I did. You write in your book, you went to quite a few number of, of shows, um, maybe at bigger venues, before the Mod Revival kicked in. And if we say that the Mod Revival kind of kicked in around early 79, and, and you talk about how it was like, more like the late spring, the summer, which is how I remember it being in the same school year. What was the difference for you? I mean, you liked some of the punk new wave music, didn't you? You were I on loved board it. With it. Yeah. So, what bands did you love there? And what was the what what sent you for mod? What made made um, you go? I am a mod. That's a good question. Um, I I liked bizarrely the Tom Robbins. I really liked that album. Uh, uh, winter of 79 or whatever it was yep. um, the first album TRB yep. Rising I think it's called anyway, I it's think, a great I think it's power, is it called Power in the Darkness I think Do you know, I, did a, I did a cover version of that some years later with a band called Mother Earth and it's very good I like but, Mother Earth and, and Tom Robinson <laughs> was on the record reading the poem but anyway that's another story um, I like Buzzcocks I thought Buzzcocks were fantastic probably the, if I hadn't been a mod I, I just suppose I would have followed the Buzzcocks. But, you know, uh, UK subs, um, the Stranglers, I mean, 
they were, it just music was great and and alternative tv i mean mm. they were just everywhere but i became a mod because i i went to see the buzzcocks and you know punks could be well there were two kinds of punks there were rich punks and normal people mm -hmm. and the rich I, I remember queuing up to the buzzcocks and just these, hearing these punks really taking the piss out of us um you know we're young boys 14 15 i suppose um dressed in you know suitably punk approved clothes and they just took the piss and and i was absolutely absolutely incandescent because i don't like people taking the piss out of me for when they don't know me, it's all right to take the piss out of me because uh, you don't like my writing or something like that, but don't take the piss out of me, you know. And um, I just cut ties with Punk that day after the Buzzcocks gig. And I I then I discovered um, Brit Funk, which mm. to me was amazing because, you know, you, I had no idea that um, you could be as exciting as the Stranglers on top of the Pops, um, high tension were, you know, and it's like high tension are wearing, they're taking their clothes off and they're just, it's just fantastic. Not their trousers, by the way, they took <laughs> their tops off. Uh, and, and that really got me. So I, I got to love Brit Funk and then, you know, you, it, at the end, uh, at the end of 78, 78, 79, I think it came, people came, to, you had to make a decision about what you were going to be into. And the fact that I was, a, I became a mod, I, I met all the mods and, you know, that I was there at the very beginning and it was important for me to be at the beginning of something. And that gave me personal ownership of it. And, you know, it was mine. That's you know, a that, really that's a really important point because I think that actually gets at the core of the mod revival. A lot of the kids who were on it, and we were kids, and were the younger brothers and just yeah. the younger generation of those who'd come into punk new wave and knew that they'd come in a bit late. So you and me being sort of 13 in 77, you can't be on board. You can't be going to see the best bands at the best clubs because you, you, you're just not old enough to have that, even to have the knowledge. So you're jumping on board. And for you, it's, it's like, oh, I'm not welcome. I love this band Buzzcocks, but somehow I'm not welcome. And yeah. the, Brit, the Brit funk thing is really important because to my shame, I had an, just an adverse reaction to that. I, I was all about sort of the, the guitars, the rock groups. I mean, they had guitars. They were funkier than any of the rock groups. But I, I, that, I, 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 think, I, I think that you were from South London and, and Brit funk was very much an Essex thing. Uh, it, there were bits of it going on in Kent, but it, it was almost, and there was a lot of synergy between Brit funk and punk. For example, um, Chris Hill used to put on the damned at Lacey Lady and things like that. So, you know, I I, I was quite open minded then, in a way that I'm not now. <laughs> which is which is interesting. Maybe we've gone the other way. I I feel like I I did myself a disservice with with groups that 
I, I, I don't know if, if the term is, I was t- it's hard for me to explain because on one hand, I was massively into the rough traits and you know, we, we had this when you approached me about first about the mod scenes book and I was like, oh, you know, you say, hey, I want to interview you for it. I'm like, I, I don't know if jamming, jamming wasn't really a mod scene. And then we had the same thing with the punk scenes. I'm like, jamming wasn't really a punk scene. But, and you did interview me and you were really kind, uh, wrote wonderfully about me, like, 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 some, you wrote some really nice stuff. I was rereading the mod scenes book. I was like, wow, I'll take you know, some great compliments. But I was massively into what was going on with the post-punk scene and all the weirdness and the like building music back up. So why I couldn't have uh, got more into that. And I was at school in Brixton and my the drummer in my band was a soul boy. And there was a lot of reggae. I loved reggae. So maybe the difference is I loved reggae and you were loving Britfunk. Yeah. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Maybe that's it. But that's an important yeah. point. But then you're looking for something that's your own, aren't you? You're looking for something you can say, this movement is mine. But at the same time, I mean, Joy Division, um, the Mekons, you know, stuff like Wire, bands like that. You know, it, there was such a plethora of, of stuff you could eat. Uh, in, you could imagine a big meal and you've got a starter of this and, you know, a pudding of that. And, you know, I just loved it. But then Maud made me choose and and i didn't uh, ex- exclude those bands at all but i just didn't write about them and, and uh i didn't i i yeah i i could once i'd seen the jam that took me over and took everything you know your first jam show if i've got it right christmas 78 music machine yes yeah yes i, I was there yep Yes, well, uh, yeah, um, it's a fantastic, you know, I mean, I think there's quite a lot about Paul Weller that's been said. So, you know, it's very hard to, to find things to say about Paul Weller. But you can, I think you can say he's the greatest poet, you know, for for that five-year period of the jam. He, he wrote some incredible songs, you know. Talking, for example, I, I've said this before, the Clash was singing about rocking the Casbah, you know, which I don't, have no idea what that is. And Paul Weller's singing about kid machines that pay for rockets and guns, you know, and it just, he spoke to me. And and I suppose Weller, as much as Maud, made it impossible to be anything else. Right. And you became the, uh, you know, the, the like, you, you may say you've you've got an existential crisis going on right now, but you became a sort of consummate mod. You're like, this is me. This is my culture. I, I know from being on your modcast, you're always saying it's a broad church. So you know, be it Brit funk, be it buzzcocks. You know, you're, you're not you personally are not about like you know drawing a very narrow margin, but stylistically, culturally, down to the scooters. You know, the cut of your clothes. You you went. This is me. I get this. And this is me for life. I mean, you know, as much as uh, I believe Weller once said, bury me a mod, I think it applies to you as much as anyone, right? <laughs> Although, he, you've he got did an say that. crisis, yeah. Now, I mean, all right, you know, uh, basically my problem with mod is that as we get older, and I mean, most mods are now 60, but they're, or they're 75, exactly. 73, right? So there are still those guys see in the pub you know that you know they were mods and they are proud of being mods but there are these guys that are 65 67 who couldn't have been mods at first 
when it first came out, Wormwood, you know, when the Modern Rival came out. So where have they come from? Because they are very different and they only appear twice a year at Brighton or, you know, and, and they wear garish um, boating blazers like Squire used to wear. And, and, and they just, they're called comedy mods. I don't like using that term, but I just had enough of them. They're, they're in Brighton. You know, I just come back from Brighton from the um, August bank holiday. And it's becoming a bit of a joke. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the mod scene took its fair share of pot shots right back in 79. I mean, you, you write in Clean Living, you write perfectly accurately about how, unfortunately, the first single out the, out the box, you know, the first one from one of the mod revival bands was not a good record. We all know, well, we all know it. It was You Need Wheels by Merton Parkers, who were a great live band. And it, it, it was almost like the scene never recovered. I mean, if you compare that to sort of New Rose as the first yeah. punk record out, unfortunately, in many ways, it never recovered. And I think an important part of why there ended up being 1500 mod zines and uh, which i mean i'm assuming that's a global figure more than just uk because it but but i think the reason that happened is the mod revival had to go back underground because it wasn't going to get love from the mainstream music and that's that's exactly what it did because from 1980 you know you couldn't get arrested being a mod band and, and why would these kids you know spend all their time practicing and then and then be you know, I read a Chords review uh, or a Secret Affair review of their second album. And it was just, you know, they should get on their scooters and bugger off. You know, it's like pathetic. Now, and, uh, you know, and uh, we, I suppose you're right, actually, we did turn underground because it was completely unknown. You know, all through the 80s, it was, you know, by about 82, when jams, when Weller split the jam, it, it had to go underground. And it became incredibly successful with children you know like i was i'm one of the oldest people you know like in 79 i was 16 15 16 yeah but but we went to see the truth in 1983 and there were 600 12 to 14 year olds there before before the venue had even opened they just come down and buy a fanzine or sign an autograph get an autograph signed by dennis graves i mean it was amazing and that makes me proud of it, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, fair, fairly said. And I probably moved on a lot. Jamming had gotten a lot uh, bigger and was becoming more of a magazine, and I was spending less time on that scene. So even though we featured, you know, bands that that, that were maybe making a step up so the truth, the big sound authority come to mind, who I just read about in the later chapters of your book, Um you know, we were featuring that, and indeed, people like uh, James Taylor Quartet that you were involved with, people like the Godfathers. I mean, I always had an eye on that, but I wasn't. I wasn't going to clubs like that anymore. I want. So, I want to get back to extraordinary sensations. Um, when you started it out, did you have any aspirations just like beyond? I think I'm going to do a scene, a zine. No, um, no inspirations at all. Um, no aspirations. No ideas. I was just doing it because I could, I think. That is the important way. It's about issue four, issue five, when I thought, well, hold on a minute. Maximum Speed's gone. Um, Diablo Go's gone. Shake's shaky. And um, Direction Reaction Creation has gone. So suddenly, 
me, there's me and Shake. Shake only lasted another two two episodes. So suddenly, I'm the biggest, and then I took it seriously. You were having a, a whole wave of fanzines, new fanzines coming up, like Roadrunner, Patriotic. Um, oh, I don't know. There are dozens of them. XL Five, you know, and and they were good, but I think we had a head start on them. So we, so I took the unusual decision the author uh, who wasn't an author at the time, he was just a mod to help me because um, just to make the fans a little bit more professional. So I think by about issue seven or issue eight, which, you know, by then it, you know, the jam would split. And, you know, I think issue 10, I think was the one that covered the jam splitting. And um, we thought, well, what are we going to do now? But, we did a new fanzine, and then surprisingly, the scene was still there. And not only was it still there, it was growing. So uh, I I saw that if I could just become a bit more professional with the fanzine and get more writers in, and, and so I didn't have to do everything myself, it would work, and it did. I think um, uh, I think for volume 16 or 17, no, I can't remember, I did that. But um, I think, we were selling 15,000 copies uh, an issue. And, you know, when you have to put them together and staple them and you, you got to prepare 30, 40 pages, all photo, all, all photocopied or printed. Um, it just becomes all encumbering and encumbersome and you just can't do it anymore. I just gave up. In the end. Yeah. Well, there's a long journey through there. Now we had a slight audio glitch right when you mentioned your partner's name. So um, I know who it is, but you want to mention it again? Yeah. His name was Terry Rawlings. He, he, he's an author now, but he, uh, he wasn't an author at the time. Now, he'd written, he wrote a, a small book that I still have. Maybe it may be worth a few, Bob. I think it, it's, it might be on Riot Stories. I'm not sure. It's the, the small face. It is, on, it is on Riot Stories. And, uh, he actually he was an author when when I I met him because he just put out riot stories, but which was, you know, uh, um, sorry, put out young mods forgotten stuff. No, what was it? All yeah, or nothing. Might, all or nothing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it. I've got it somewhere down here. I've been smart enough to hold on to a few things over the years. Yeah, yeah. So he was known. He was known on on the scene. I mean, your story up to a point is kind of classic. You know, you do a fanzine, and. You got a little lucky with printers, didn't you? Because that was the hardest thing for every, everybody. It sounds like you had a mate that was running it off at work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw him the other week and I said, God, look, I'm really sorry you didn't get sacked, did you? And he said, no, no, it's fine. So basically, he started printing 50 copies. He'd run them off and staple them. So, you know, but then that was for issue two or issue three. Then issue four was a couple of hundred, issue five, 500, <laughs> you know, and he's going, oh, he had to go in at night and do, you know, without his boss knowing, and do this uh, this 15,000, you know, it's, it's incredible. I was very lucky. You were, you were lucky because that was always, I say this on every episode because it comes up every time around. It was the hardest thing was to find a, a, a printer you could work with or, you know, everybody's got a story. Oh, yeah, the first issue was done at school. The first issue was done at my mum's job, you know, and then I had to figure out how to print it. And you did get lucky with that. And, I, I, I you know, but we all need to make our own luck. The, the fact is... You, you wouldn't have had cause to ask him to print more if you if you hadn't latched on to something. Why 
Why did Extraordinary Sensations take off? I mean, why your fanzine over, you mentioned South Circular, you mentioned Roadrunner, you mentioned XL5, Patriotic. I think it took off because it, it was irreverent. We, we were quite rude about some people. Um, in fact, of a quite famous mod band, um, tore, tore up a copy of the fanzine and threw it all over me at the moment. Um, so I didn't please everyone, but... But um, I think we captured as we captured it, if you know what I mean. It the the young children, the kids, you know, from fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, that would come out in the mid eighties. You know, and it was <coughs> it was not big. It was not successful in the you know the first four four or five episodes because there was a lot of fans around, but. It was very successful afterwards. For example, with Caroline Music in Belfast, we used to send them 500 copies. You know, this is there's crazy. Carry On, crack, crack On, or um, Spillers in Cardiff, which is the oldest record shop in the world. We used to send them 500 copies. It's, and they'd sell them, and then ring up and say, you got any more? Or, yeah, we, 500 more to anywhere, can you imagine? Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Jack Jamming wasn't doing that. And I, I read this. Um, I, I've got to say for listeners, you, you don't blow your own trumpet about uh, extraordinary sensations, either in mod zines, which I think you, know, you had to say, hey, I ran a fanzine. I'm going to kind of quote myself. But it's not it's not in preference to anybody else, especially allowing how big the fanzine was. And clean living under difficult circumstances is more of a full memoir. And you don't go too deep into the interviews uh, or your favorite articles or any you know you, you mentioned a couple of experiences but not 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 too many um so i i guess i'm just getting at the fact that you know you obviously hit on something because jamming even with the paul mccartney interviews with that glossy brilliantly designed couple of issues i had that robin richards helped design we were hitting that number i i, I mean it's that's a phenomenal number of fanzines i i had about Two or three thousand subscribers. So the you know we'd sold, you know. But I was also sending them internationally. So they would you know I'd be there'd be three hundred copies in Germany to this guy, and five hundred in Spain and five in Italy because there was a need for it. There was a lot of mods. Um, they couldn't get the information anywhere else. So you know why not? But I, I you know, something you said there about my interviews um i did do interviews obviously i did a lot of interviews but the one i remember most is t um, is tony perfect the great tony perfect who, who sadly died of locked of of covid yeah. um during lockdown um and it's perception because i i went to the marquee club and i waited three weeks in a row they used to do a tuesday night um, residency and i waited three weeks in a row can I have a word with Tony? No, you can't. Bugger off, you little git. Which was the manager, Jerry Floyd. And in the end, the fourth week, he said, look, that bloody bloke's here outside. You better talk to him or he'll just continue to bore you. And I didn't know that. I thought, oh, I've got a chat with Tony Perfect. It's great. And, um, you know, it, it's different perspectives. That fans, to us, the fans is really important. But to a mod band, or to a band that are getting approached by fanzines once a week, or they're not bothered at all. And it just happened that I was lucky because my interviewing skills were very poor at first. 
Um, I've since interviewed about a thousand people, um, mainly on radio, um, including Oasis and Paul Weller and various, you know, um, quite big people. But I was crap at first. Well, we're all, yeah, we're all we're all relatively crap. I actually. <clears throat> dispute i think um jerry floyd was a, a great character really good dj at, at, at the marquee and he was a 60s mod if i'm right and so he would play some really good records between bands but i would think especially if you're in a band that's on a scene um and is not you know number one in the pop charts with a publicist at a major record label i think you take every fanzine interview and well a pretty famously didn't turn them down i think i think it got to the point that you know you you were you were looking for a mod fanzine that didn't have a paul weller interview yeah and i've spoken to a lot of people who say i've never turned them down i'm a bit like that with podcasts i get approached a lot and i'm like it's the modern fanzine they've asked me they, they're putting something together i mean you know i can't spare them an hour of my time so i'm a little surprised about that tony was a lovely guy and uh long tall shorty became sort of mainstays of the scene but then what was in the writing uh, what was in the fa uh, extraordinary sensations was it the reviews that mattered were you working like a newsletter um you know did terry uh, uh, get to contribute you know do you feel like you've got more writers in who brought something to it that, that enabled terry, you to reach this number terry started a bit later i i i expanded i got brian betteridge um, mm. uh, to write uh, an article on John Lennon's poetry, and I got a bloke called Ian Clark to write about the soul scene. And, you know, I found that it was easier palming it off to people. And then you take more of a classic editor's role, and, oh, I'll put that in there, and I'll put that in. Um, but, I mean, can I change the subject? Yeah, of course you can. Now, I, I wrote a book called Punk Scenes, which... I am immensely proud of because um, I didn't know where punk came from. And so I had to find out, you know, it was just there in England and I had to find out. And I, I dug deep and I, I, I arrived at a conclusion. Um, punk started in America. There's no doubt about that. But the Sex Pistols were a situationist joke. They were a joke by Malcolm McLaren. Now it didn't, it didn't click straight away because you don't think, you know, a 15 year old kid who likes sex, he's just like sex pistols. But it, it was a joke. How? Well, he, he, made, he wanted the spectacle. He didn't want, he didn't want a rock and roll band, certainly. And, and Jamie Reeb was a situationist and, and they met at college and they got this together. And, it, they were a brilliant band. I think they were probably too good for what he wanted. And so he he got rid of the posh bass player and got Sid Vicious in. And that, you know, that when I realised that, it was amazing. It's Im Sorry, I just... No, <laughs> just... I think, well, that, that that's important. And, and the, the punk fanzines book is great as well. I think, you know, one of the things, I've, uh, because we share the publisher, I know how well the modzines book sold. And I think that also speaks again to the dedication of that of that scene. And I know I've been getting the words interchanged here, just like we do these days with episode and issue. It's like a really easy thing. But I think that helps um, that helps speak to it. The, the punk fanzines book uh, is great. And I'm quoted in that one 
as well, and you've gone right back to the beginning. You actually have this deep-rooted love for neither a British nor an American band that you consider utterly essential to the punk scene. <laughs> and, and you got to see them with your mad trip down to Australia, where you were, were absolutely treated like royalty when you were, what, 18, 19 years old and between yeah. uh, major label, well, between record business jobs. Um, so what was that band? And it's the one record that, that, that really does fill a void, doesn't it? Yeah, that was The Saints. And The Saints were just incredible. Any of their early singles, and right up to their third or fourth album, they they played fantastic music. I the the bass player of the Saints, the one with the really long hair, he was he became a mod. He cut his hair and he joined a, a British mod band called Small Hours, which I really loved. Yeah. And so he left the Saints. By the time I saw them, there was Algie Ward was from the Damned. He he was playing in the but the Damned had loads of bass players as well. So they did, yeah. Um, but I think this, people for, have forgotten the Saints, I think, and they were just very important. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned you did, and, and obviously you write about that in the book. Yeah, Algie Ward was, was kicked out of the Damned, and that's interesting. He went to join the Saints, and the Saints bass player joined Small Hours. And Small Hours, like Long Tall Shorty, who you mentioned, were one of, one of, the, um, one of the groups who really stayed the course. Like, they, they were like, we're in this scene, and... Um, and we're going to stay in it. And they, they, you know, to my mind, they became kind of quite, you know, quite big bands on a scene where the other big bands had broken up. You know, your Chords and your Merton Parkers and your Secret Affair all had to call it a day after a couple of albums. And they kind of stayed the course. Do I have that right? It's not really about fans. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they split in 19... They basically, um, I think, uh, Neil Thompson was the singer and he had a career as a film director and i think when he, he the pressure was on him to do something he left and did it and and i think that they lasted until probably probably about christmas 1980 actually well small hours yeah there is a band called small world that uh, that lasted they were a second wave but when they started in 1980 and uh, they carried all the way through. But Small World, uh, yeah, Small World uh, were pretty good, actually. They were signed to Ed Ball's Times label, but Small Hours released a fantastic mini album, um, and they also appeared on Mods May Day. Right. Yeah. Was Small World, like, pretty soulful? I mean, you would like to believe all my bands no, are. No, okay. but you're, you're thinking the right band. They, they right. were so Carol Isaacs on keyboards as well gave them a real edge. But they didn't last that long. I mean, I might be wrong, but only by six months. Right. So, okay. You know. I think I got. I think I just did one of those. Um, you can tell I'm, I wasn't. I wasn't deep, deep, deep in it because I think I've just connected the two bands by mistake. But yeah, anyway, it's, anyway, it's, we're, we're also getting old, Ed, so that's easy yeah. enough to do. <laughs> um, what you mentioned about Neil going on to become a film director. When I was reading Mod Zines. Um, you know, the number of names, and I think it's going to be fun to go through some of these. And let's just like spend 30 seconds at most on each and, and talk about, because it would be easy for somebody who's listening and going, yeah, but this is all this subculture that, you know, I wasn't a mod. Why, why, yeah. What's this? Where, yeah, you know, these, these are all just people who didn't go on to it. Well, people went on to a lot of things. So let, let, let's, this really came through reading it. Dominic Kenny, shake. 
His story is almost the most interesting because he was young, 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 and he had his own flat on the Labrook Grove, which I did stay at one night. He was he was like living by on his own at a very young age. Now, do you know what Dominic does now? Well, I know what he did. And yeah, he did. I, Saying that, he did. Yeah, Dom Dom uh, became a <laughs> a reggae star, and he had a, a number one reggae hit in Jamaica. I know. And, um, <laughs> He, he he's a rapper he's called dj dominic and uh it just blew me away he's it, on the youtube if you want to see it it blew me as well away as well it should be uh should be noted he's white he went to kingston jamaica oh, and made oh, it. Yeah. sorry <laughs> uh, i should have yeah i mean we know he's white of course but other people don't so yeah i mean he's probably the only white person ever to have the number one in, in jamaica yeah he I mean, signed I, to he signed to king tubbies didn't he i think so yeah. Yeah, I mean it's such it's such a story, and he had a lot of front. I'll give him that, but that was not a path you saw back in 1980. You didn't go, yeah. oh, Dominic. You know, I predict you're going to be an enormous reggae star in Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> the path people take. Um, uh, uh, let, let me go through. Let me go through a few others. You mentioned um, uh, Chris. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. I think. You, well, I'm going to mention him, Chris Hunt. Um, his was Shadows and Reflections was his fanzine, which is a, a song the action did. Um, Chris, Chris went on to a career, didn't he? Yeah, Shoot magazine, uh, the mm. football, the soccer magazine, as I should call it, because I'm on the phone to you. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, he, he, I can't, I haven't seen Chris that, that much, so I don't necessarily keep up with it, but, but he did. Uh, he definitely did shoot and uh, a couple of other magazines and maybe a book as well. Yeah, he did. He did some books. Um, he became like, a, you know, he actually took his experience from doing a fanzine to become like a, a more sort of mainstream, um, mainstream editor as such. Um, you mentioned XL5 fanzine. So I've got to give Kevin Bagnor a shout out because he joined my band. Right. Well, he, then, <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy, actually. Yeah. Uh, I'll just, I'll just maybe got in touch with him again actually yeah i think he's done a compendium of xl5 so maybe baggy will be on at some point and uh the, the name that kind of quite surprised me in here bill brewster who a lot of people know from uh so sort of, you know last night a dj saved my life the, the the really great book about the history of djs he did a, a mod fanzine it, well he i didn't know he did a fanzine actually but there is a photo of us Mm -hmm. uh, the enemy in the enemy. Not that they wrote about mods very often, but there's a photo of of us at, at the Purple Hearts, and I'm standing next to him. I didn't know him until much later, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I I was. You always used to look for you. You used to look for for your picture when uh, you know the music papers took photos of people because I was usually down the front, and I, I'm in several magazines it's very bizarre yeah it is it is quite fun um you know though in those days that counted for a lot there's a whole story it's in i think it's in boy about town about uh, us uh showing up in harper's bazaar without our knowledge and that was that was a very very uh strange one that was when everybody was writing about the mod revival um i've i've still got that cut out from uh from the scrapbook uh you also write i mean a lot of bands you know had mod roots a lot of people like wham um you know who i just finished watching the documentary just on sunday i think uh you know wham started out as a as, as a mod group and yeah, there were a lot Sp of people. So did Spanner, so did Spanner Ballet. Um, yeah. I mean, um, 
it's funny because um, I I do a bit of work with Robert Elms over here, and mm-hmm. and he is he's a cultural commentator, and he's very good friends with Spano Ballet, and I am doing well. Hopefully later in the year, I'm doing a Q and A with um, the singer so, Tony Hadley. Yeah, um, no, I'm not oh, not <laughs> not Tony Hadley. Shit, oh, <laughs> I'm doing a, I'm doing a Q and A with um, the Base, oh, I don't know whatever his name is. I can't remember now. So yeah, this is um, I uh, basically uh, I had a stroke, so I, I'm not very good at remembering, and um, it's it's done my memory in a bit. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. We talked about that before we came on air because uh, I I didn't know till we was till we were setting up this interview. And uh, you you know about ten years or so ago you beat uh, was it throat cancer was it mouth cancer yeah. throat cancer yeah you beat that. Um, so I I think everybody who knows you will uh, be wishing you the very 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 best and uh, you know for for the best recovery that you can that you can have confirmation that we're. We're all getting older, and uh, I've had a couple of weird things happen to me that you just, you know, suddenly they happen. You're like, where did that come from? So, yeah, good. Yeah, no, no, that's fully, that's fully understood. Um, you, you know, that definitely a lot of people, a lot of bands. I, I think it's fair to say, you know, had their, they enjoyed the mod revival and then had to figure out where they were going to go uh, from there. Uh, another thing that's really uh, powerful in in mod zines is the the number of girls, females, women who were doing mod fanzines and we yeah. didn't get that in punk or post-punk i've had to really cast a wide net to actually correct that even on this podcast um it wasn't happening on the punk scene and yet some people many people would say well mod revival was by its very nature reactionary but it seems a little more i mean there were yeah, I, written I, a whole chapter and it's, it's not tokenistic there's dozens and dozens of yeah them. i mean there's a, a, um, a there's a very famous american photographer who's a girl her name is me now who run wham fanzine uh which was a west coast la fanzine uh, and she became a very successful photographer of, of sports believe it or not uh, but there's you know there's loads of girls uh, my first, well, one of my, anyway, a girlfriend. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Own up time was uh, was a fantastic little fanzine, you know. Um, but go go. I mean, there's loads. There are absolutely loads. But mod, it wasn't a reactionary thing at all. It was we don't want modern life. We don't want we want we want to create a world that we think. That is how mods lived. It wasn't how they lived at all. It was completely contemporary, but we rejected the contemporary influences uh, 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 as they didn't matter to us. You know, we could quite easily go and not watch TV, you know, TV. Oh, you know, so well, I think, it's just, yeah, sure. I think where you, I think where you really get at that is with your trip down to Australia where so this is about 1983 or so I think you're 19 or yeah, 83 so, yeah yeah so just after the jam of split and when the the mod scene in in Britain is going to have to go back underground you go down to Sydney where a you're treated like royalty but they've got they've got these mods down there have a whole lifestyle going on it's 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 pretty funny isn't it it's like getting dressed up for cocktails at the poshest hotel in Sydney 
Yeah, I mean, who would do that? <laughs> but they did, and 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 there was a lot of them as well. Mod developed differently in Australia because it was introduced literally by two brothers and they molded it how they wanted it. Whereas I think in Britain it happened, it just happened. Mm. But in Australia, um, it was kind of different and it was a really, really good fun. I mean, I tried to live, I tried to live there, but I couldn't get a visa. So yeah, just as I, well, really. Yeah, I know. I mean, well, you know what, that'll take us to a nice sort of segue because much as uh, we, we could keep this going for hours, we're not, we're not going to. Yeah. A couple of things, um, development. So yeah, this, this, you know, your, your, your destiny was to be who you were in the UK, basically. And there's, there's a couple of things. Um, Weller uh, reached out and gave you use of an office, didn't he? When Extraordinary Sensations just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Am I correct yeah. with that? Yes, we lost our office in Dagenham, um, which, to be honest, was there was nothing in Dagenham. It was it was an industrial estate town. That was it. Um, it's part of London, um, and Paul generously. I mean, he was strangely generous at certain things um, and really good. He just said, "Hey, come work in our, our place." So we had an office, which. Funnily enough, we didn't need because we did need it, but we didn't need it for too long because we got a lot. We got, a, I mean, from the disaster of losing our office, and you know, we got a, a record label for Stiff, and they paid for us to have an office. And then I stopped doing the fanzine, you know. So, so is that this was, r yeah, roughly what year is this that we're talking about now? About eighty-five. Right. So, uh, so well has had style council. He's still got style council in 85, hasn't he? It's still, yeah. 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 No, I think, I think, well, uh, uh, sorry, I was thinking of when it stopped. Um, sorry. It's, it's at least probably late 83. Right. It's, it, it's interesting because did he, did he actually beyond like giving you use of an office? Did he, did he put in money for the, the zine or no. you just were self, you no. were self-contained. So it was use of yeah, an well, office. We didn't ask him for any, I mean, I'm sure he would have, but, um, you know, we felt that we could do it ourselves. So, yeah, yeah. I made a point. This came up in a in a recent episode. Where I think it was James Brown uh, was was misinformed, and and it's worth my stating it again because when we when Weller and I did the label, we deliberated for a long time on what to call it, and by calling it jamming, it gave the impression that he was behind the fanzine, and he wasn't. And at one point, he offered financial help for the fanzine, and I had to turn it down. I was like, even though I need help. I can't, I've got to keep this independent. You know, it's a fanzine. I, I have to keep it independent. So um, I was curious about that. So yeah, no, the use of an office, he was generous. And in turn, didn't you turn around and uh, put out a record with him when he uh, actually did not have a major label uh, chasing him? Well, I, I, I've known Paul, obviously, since he, since 1980, since he, we interviewed him. And, and, you know, at times I've been very close. Um, I was his tour DJ, but, I don't know five six years, and um, that's an interesting job. Um, but I put what you're talking about. I put out many of his records over the years, but I think we put out a jazz record for him, um, which was only the ninth record we put out, and it was, you know, it was quite a big record. And someone told Polydor, um, and I got sacked by Polydor. This isn't in the book, is it? No, it's um, not in the book. It's because... touched on. It, it is touched on. Oh, I know. No, I heard it on the podcast. I heard it on another podcast you were on. Yeah. 
yeah, so so it'll be in my second book. But um, I pretty much got attacked by uh, David Munns, and who called me all the names under the sun and said, "How dare you? Um, we we're trying to, you know, reach the settlement with the Stale Council, and you just bought it and done this." Uh, and it, I got sacked. So it was quite a strange time. What was the um, and, name that the record came out under? Um, like a gun by King Truman. They they. It, it, um, it didn't come out. I mean, it probably about 300 copies made it out to the shops. So, uh, because Polydor just said, I'll sue you. So. Right, right. Well, yeah, the music business, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, fists, fists can fly. People do get put up against a wall and people do get dangled out of windows. Mm. And, uh, you know, you've got your share of scrapes in your, in, in, uh, clean living. Some of them are, uh, some of them are really, uh, really, really, uh, uh, violent. Uh, I just want to stay with acid jazz, though, because uh, you just referenced it. We referenced it at the start that your bio on the book says, you know, that's what you're probably best known for. Um, you started as a really important label, and it, the name does not indicate that it was to do with mod, and and it kind of created a movement that's still with well, us, right? It wasn't to do with mod. You know, I was a mod. Giles Peterson wasn't a mod. Um, and I started it with Giles Peterson. So it's important to say that. And in fact, he left because of mods. He didn't like mods. And because he said that, that you know, the only thing he had in common with me was uh, a penchant for Kabichi shirts. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rest of it, the mods came along, took Esther Jazz over. Well, you know, hey, unlucky. But um, I... I we look. We saw a gap in the market for mod influenced music, but we didn't want to tell mods. We didn't at all. We just did it, and then they found out about it. So the face uh, and ID magazine. It was very, very big for a couple of years, and uh, they just they called it the new mod scene. About around, but but there's a a piece in the face where they describe. Um, people that go to our clubs and they they don't wear classic mod clothes it's mod with a twist right <laughs> take, take years to explain yeah well we and and there's there's a lot of that in the book you know the mod mod went paisley very quickly and there's all all kinds mm. of things all i remember that paisley period there's all kinds of things yeah. that go on. but acid jazz uh, became a very important label and and you still have it correct yeah yeah, yeah. um yes um I run it with Dean, Dean Rudland, who's my partner. Um, and it's it's very, you know, it's very varied. We release African funk from the 70s. Um, Benin, actually, for the country Benin. Um, to, you know, anything. Yeah. It's not just a soul label or a dance label. It's not a dance label. Don't no. get me wrong. It's very, very wide ranging. And then, of course, you've been um, a celebrated uh, DJ. You've done, you know, like, like not, not just your own uh, you know, uh, mod boat events and your own club nights, but you've, you've kind of traveled all around the world DJing as well. And you've put out a couple of your own DJ albums as well, like compilations, haven't you? Including, uh, including yeah. with a couple of well-known, well-known, or at least one well-known uh, uh, TV star who's a bit of a consummate mod, and most of us knew it watching the first episode of the show he was known for. Yeah, yeah. Martin Freeman is, is a mod, actually, um, which just shows, you know, it can stay with you. It can stay with you for life. Bill Nighy, you know, Bill Nighy's 77 yeah. years old, or, I think, and he's a mod, you know, and you can tell when you look at him. So, you know, it's just, 
it's it's a it's my way of life you know and that that's where we're going to leave it uh only because we've we've used up the time i think that's a perfect way to 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 leave it god we covered a lot of ground and there's a lot of ground we didn't cover and some of it i don't mind not not covering there, 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 i was i was going to backtrack to some of the the culture wars that were literally wars and some of the violence that's in in your book that was just a terrible part of the fact that we had so many youth cultures so you know whatever else um you know we we all survived to this point because not everybody did uh pleasure always a pleasure talking with you Ed, as yeah, I great remember to you. call you, always, always a pleasure. And all three books are are great. And uh, you know, if, if ever somebody uh, tells me they got a first issue of Extraordinary Sensations, I will be very sure to reach out to you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Anyway, yeah. Cheers, cheers, Ed. Take care now. Bye bye. Bye bye. A special thank you again to Ed for coming on the show. I hadn't actually realized until we had a couple of uh, delays setting this up that uh, Ed had suffered a stroke recently. And I did know that several years back he uh, he fought off um, throat cancer. And that was pretty severe at the time. And it took him out of action for a number of months. And uh, I think <laughs> a lot of people who know Ed would know that uh, him not being able to uh, talk and go on the radio and stuff was pretty hard. He fought that one off. He bounced back. He is, uh, he, as far as I know, he has completely the all clear on that. So it was unfortunate to know about the stroke. The fact that he mentioned it here means it is now, you know, it is public knowledge. I did not know. And uh, I just want to wish Ed the very, very, very best for the future. I think he's uh, just got to slow things down a little bit now. Uh, you know, he and I were both pushing 60 and we both lived uh, sort of pretty fast lives to some extent. And, uh, you know, there is always the danger that it catches up with us. So, uh, you know, I do want to put that out there. Um, up front, I got the subtitle of the book wrong. I don't really think anybody cares, but it's called Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, A Life in Mod. From the Revival to Acid Jazz. If you know uh, anything about The Who and Pete Meaden, their first sort of manager, and uh, Sven Gali, or would-be Sven Gali, uh, he was the one who came up on, uh, with the phrase clean living under difficult circumstances as a sort of... Uh, description of the mod lifestyle so it was appropriate for ed's book uh, there was lots uh, that, that we didn't get into one of the things that we didn't get into and i'm kind of quite glad we didn't was the violence that surrounded the youth culture back in the day um it's really easy to to to, to glamorize uh the whole period of you know punks and mods and rockabillies and skinheads and all of that but and two-tone and everything um and then goth and, and yet everybody in britain seemed to be part of a youth cult but it was violent and i thought i'd seen some violence i haven't seen being around people dying and being slashed uh, to the degree that ed has and it's a pretty horrifying reading in his book, uh, Ed's upbringing means he's fought back a number of times. He's had some. Uh, he's had a couple of court appearances over the years. He's been hit on by the police a number of times. And his uh, book, um, it, it's really wonderful in its uh, in its storytelling. It really, really does take you there, and it uh, tells you a lot about the British mod revival stuff that we just didn't get into uh, during that conversation. I heartily recommend it. I'm hopefully going to 
you know, pen a few more words about that on my Substack when I share out the longer version, you know, the unedited version of this interview. So again, tonyfletcher.substack.com. Uh, there's a midweek update every week with, uh, you know, uh, just news and recommendations for music, for podcasts, for reading, for viewing, uh, any events or writing that I've got going on. And there's also a longer form weekend article. I'm also posting interview transcripts with the uh, backstories from my Keith Moon book, which is 25 years old at the point that I am recording this. I just did a couple of really successful events for that, which was really, really nice. Uh, those are behind the paywall, but it's only five bucks a month and there's going to be more to come as well. Maybe even, who knows, maybe an exclusive kind of podcast show, you know, um, head on over and find out. Um, the next episode if all goes well, it's going to take us further back than the Mod Revival and take us back to the very beginning of the British punk scene and punk zines. By the way, did you notice uh, a couple of old men there mixing up the word zines and scenes and episodes and issues? I mean, listen, if uh, podcasts are the new fanzines, then it's okay for us to get those words mixed up. Uh, but anyway, hopefully, fingers crossed, because the interview's not in the bag yet, we'll be going right back to the beginning of the British punk scenes, punk zines. So if you haven't yet, please hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. I mean, you're welcome to go off and review the show somewhere. Uh, personally, I, I just prefer that you uh, make sure you're you're around, stay in touch via Substack. Let us know what you think some way or another. There's a couple of social media, um, what do you call them, links in the show notes. Of course, Ed's book will be linked in the show notes. Everything relevant to him will be in there. And I will see you next time. The show drops once a month. And uh, usually it's... Uh, it's bang in the middle of the month. So just, you know, keep your eye out for it. Keep your ear out for it. I'll see you over on Substack. Take care now, everybody. Bye-bye. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming? <laughs>